So I said I uh, would like to cover uh, four areas uh, in this introduction. Uh, the what are we talking about when we talk about enchanting and re-enchanting, the why it's important, the context and bases for uh, giving these teachings and for the, for the material and the thrusts of it, and also a little bit about how to relate to the retreat, the practice, the teachings. It's probably clear just from what I said so far that these these uh, four are not actually separate. They're woven in together. But let's continue a little bit. And I want to maybe uh, open up a little bit more about the uh, question of why why this might be important, this re-enchantment, why offering these teachings might be important. Um, and that's also tied in with that very much is the whole context of these teachings in which these teachings take place and um, these ideas uh, and also the bases. So these two tie in a little bit together. So why is it important? Well, one, we're going to be saying more about uh, many of these uh, reasons and, and much of the material as the retreat goes on, but one aspect, uh, one reason why it's all this is important is uh, because of the environmental crises we face, because of the uh, situation that humanity and other species now face um, globally on our planet. Um, I'm not going to talk that much about that on this retreat because I've talked about it elsewhere uh, several times uh, in relation to the imaginal enchantment and um, and also written about it. So um, I won't be talking that much about it on this retreat, but in a way it's implicit, I hope, that that is a fundamental reason um, and uh, a strand that runs through uh, the whole of the teaching and, 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 and what we're doing here. But even that, it's only for some people uh, that this re-enchantment of nature, of the cosmos of the world, is actually, if you like, necessary or what will uh, transform their relationship uh, to the world, to nature, to the planet, to the earth, to other beings, also in a way that um, is more ecologically viable towards a a stance and a relationship that's more ecologically viable. I think the whole psychological, psycho-spiritual reasons behind the uh, huge fix we're in as a a species and the, the environmental crises is too... There's too much complexity there. There's different reasons why people act or don't act or are involved or engage or turn to or turn away from or interested, not interested. And so just to think that one thing is going to do the trick for the whole of humanity uh, in terms of changing the relationship, I think that's naive. But certainly for many people, the disenchantment that uh, has come in a way, as partly as a result of the Western Enlightenment, partly as a result of industrialization and consumerism and all kinds of things um, that we that's so prevalent nowadays, um, for many people this re-enchanting is going to be pretty central. And for people who are already involved, actors who are already involved, um, another level of depth 
can be opened up there uh, that gives support and strength and um, equanimity and uh, forbearance, etc., uh, in in relation to their activism. But as I said, I've talked about that all uh, before and written about it, and I'm not going to dwell on it too much on this retreat. What I want to open up a little bit, though, instead is, or as well as that, is is the whole relationship of the movement of reenchantment uh, and through image, etc., of that with the whole question of freedom, freedom from suffering and happiness. Uh, so, what is the relationship between reenchantment and happiness, or easing suffering, or freedom from suffering, or whatever? Now, this actually is a very complex question. This is why I want to go into it, and something we'll return to as the retreat goes on, open up in di- different aspects of it. Some of you may have heard uh, of Matthew Ricard. He's a uh, French-born uh, monk in the Gelug Tibetan tradition. I think he's Gelug uh, tradition. Um, and he's written a number of books, etc. But one of the reasons why he's well-known is because some scientists or other um, found him and uh, were doing a bunch of brain uh, brain uh, scan readings of people's brain activity um, uh, and relating that to happiness. Uh, And they, whatever their measures in the brain um, of happiness were, they found that, you know, people, the hundreds and hundreds or thousands of people they tested, most were grouped within a certain range. And Matthew Rickard was completely off the scale. He was like the most happy person (laughs) that uh, any of them had ever encountered by far in terms of what his brain uh, waves were showing or whatever. So I have a question about, I mean, assuming we can trust all that measurement business, but but I have a question about that, and and it really is a question. Um, How come? How come he's so happy? What's going on there? He's a Tibetan monk, quite busy uh, doing stuff, writing uh, and uh, traveling. And if you know that tradition, it's not very uh, meditatively intensive. Um, So the question I have is, is his extreme happiness, his unusual uh, level of happiness, is it a result of what we could call mental technologies of, say, mindfulness, for example, learning to see a thought as a thought and let go of it, of staying at contact, of um, being aware and keeping the attention on the the nexus of Vedana and craving without, uh, through the mindfulness, without letting it go into the next stage of clinging, etc., and causing dukkha. Is his happiness a result of uh, primarily of the, those kind of what we could call mental technologies? Or is it a result of the fact that in that tradition that he's in, he has somehow managed to uh, really fully inhabit a myth, a fantasy of the, of the Bodhisattva, of being born through countless lives, and dedicating those lives and one whole, one's whole existence to the uh, in to his own enlightenment for the sake of other beings, he is, in other words, inhabiting uh, a myth that is 
huge, um, enormous in its uh, temporal and spatial scope, in its range, in what it uh, means for the whole being, in its orientation, in its meaningfulness. And he's managed, it's enchanting. And not only that, um, perhaps uh, he, he has entered into a whole different way of seeing the cosmos. So in the Tibetans um, basically inhabit a different con- uh, cosmos than, than we do in the modern West. They live in a cosmos that is enchanted, uh, that is sacred. It's a sacred cosmos. Uh, it's not this flat, materialist, meaningless, soulless cosmos um, that we um, typically live in in the modern West. It's pregnant with uh, with... Uh, sanctity with mystery with depth. So of these two factors, and I'm sure he practices some mental technologies of mindfulness and all, all that, etc. Of these two factors, the mental technologies or the inhabiting of uh, an enchanting myth and the inhabiting of a sacred cosmos, which is more powerful for him? Which is more powerful in bringing happiness and freedom? I have a real question about that. But pursuing this a little more, you know, what we could call mental technologies, these are really important. Of course they are. I wouldn't teach meditation if I didn't think that. But the function of these mental technologies is often, probably mostly conceived nowadays, mostly conceived in limited and limiting ways. In other words, we can learn these technologies of mindfulness and seeing thoughts, thoughts, staying in contact, all that stuff. Um, but what they really are, what they're really seen as, and this is explicitly or implicitly communicated, um, is that what we're really doing then is coping with reality. We're meeting reality, or so-called reality, and coping with it through these mental technologies, learning skills to cope with the reality of our minds, our bodies, and our situation. And even if those technologies and the teachings uh, are extended to the three characteristics, the Buddhist uh, three characteristics of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness, of the impermanence of all things, and of the um, uh, if you say the absence of of a, of a true self, of a real self, even if the teachings and technologies are extended to those three characteristics beyond just simple mindfulness, um, still what's happening there is a kind of what we're in, what we'd be engaged in is endlessly and repetitively, repetitively um, coping with reality. So the three characteristics then. Uh, are just really seen as existential truths. They're part of the reality with which we cope with moment to moment, again and again, and that is the path. The path is just learning this endless, repetitive, so-called meeting with reality, which is really coping with reality. But this reality uh, of uh, who we are, what our existential situation is, this is regarded as a truth. 
Now, philosophically nowadays, it's become very unpopular to use words like truth. So people, either within Buddhism, within secular Buddhism, or um, outside in in some modern philosophies, they they try and uh, not use the word truth or poo-poo it. Um, But whether they use it or not, it's still implicit there, uh, taken for granted that these are existential truths or realities. Sometimes modern philosophers use the word facticity. It's a very unusual word, but basically they don't want to use truth. <laughs> and so they use another word that in hides the fact of what's being assumed to be true, unquestionably. But for us the function of these uh, meditative technologies, if you like, that we can learn, that can extend way beyond this kind of coping with reality. It can, and I would say I hope it, it, it does extend for us, into an opening, a deepening, an enriching uh, of our sensitivity. The sensitivity of our being, of our seeing, of our knowing, are dwelling in the world so that um, the, the whole sense of sacredness opens up through that sensitivity. The, sen- the sensitivity that, that we grow opens up, reveals for us in, in many different ways uh, the sense of sacredness in our lives. And those the, the function of those technologies can extend into really seeing the possibilities of fabricating less perception. So still that teaching of fabrication is there, implicit, even if it's not used, that language um, in, in mindfulness, typical mindfulness teachings, typical insight meditation teachings. But oftentimes the depth of possibility or the range to which that... Um, extends this possibility of learning to fabricate less perception at times and what that then reveals, what that opens to us. That that possibility is severely truncated, but actually we can extend it. It's enormous. We can really see the centrality and the possibility of fabricating less perception, learning how to do that and what it implies and what it opens. Because it implies, it opens for us the possibility of vastly different perceptions. Whole uh, mystical perceptions of existence open up and of, uh, uh, that are essentially less fabricated. We talked about this with perceptions of different kinds of oneness and, and ultimately with perception of the unfabricated. What is completely transcendent, beyond space, beyond time, beyond all notions of subject and object and conventional perception that the Buddha pointed to repeatedly. And this journey into fabricating much less uh, that opens up when we don't constrain it by assumptions of um, the reality of what we're having to cope with, when we view the path as this exploration of fabricating less and less perception at times, can't live there, we also... Uh, reveal the emptiness of all things, the emptiness of all perception, the dependent arising of all perceptions at a very deep level, at a deeper and deeper level. Massively significant. Um, And this in itself opens up for us, or through that, um, both as process and as result, we open up our skill, the art of 
the flexibility of moving in and out of a whole range of ways of looking. And part of that, uh, we develop the skill, the art of cosmopoiesis. The cosmopoiesis as a way of looking, or as ways of looking, plural, said they're infinite, that become more and more available to us as we extend these techniques, as we don't um, limit them and the way we're conceiving of them and, 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 and what they're for. So tied in with all this is what is the point of, of practice? What is the point of the path? So I don't just mean what's the point of this retreat. I mean the whole path, the whole dharma. What's the point? What's the point? For me, if I just uh, am honest, for me, this um, extension, expansion, deepening, opening of the sense of, sac- of the sacredness of, of everything, everything, uh, the, the opening... Uh, of, of a sense of beauty, the, the extension of the sense of the, the beauty that goes with that, the opening of the range of soul-making and the sense of soulfulness, the expansion of possibilities for engaged, creative participation in perception, creative participation in, in our perception and sense of existence, self, other, world, etc., and creative participation in our interpretation of existence, in, in, in the hermeneutical dimension and aspect of our being. How are we interpreting self, other, world, life, existence, being? And all the art that goes with, the, uh, with all that that I've just talked about. That to me, uh, if I'm honest for myself, that's become the point of practice, and maybe it always was for me, I don't know, more primary than anything else. And with that, of course, the wonder, the awe that opens with all that, the deep uh, bowing of the whole being, the sense of blessing, uh, again, profound and uh, um, universal almost, that opens with all that. This, for me, uh, maybe it always was, but it certainly has become uh, more and more uh, the point of practice, if I just share, for me, the point of the path. Happiness, um, or an increase in happiness, an increase in peace, an increase in, uh, or decrease in suffering, um, these are definitely results of this deeper, uh, more widely conceived path. But in a way, maybe they're side effects. So I want to I tread carefully here, and I don't want to impose any view on anyone. So I, I really have to say, I respect anyone's choices around all this, uh, for the most part. Um, so uh, you decide, what is, your, uh, what is the point of your practice? What is the point of your path? And some, for a while at least, this is very, very common, some for a while at least, this uh, decrease of suffering, increase of happiness, of well-being, it, it has to be, uh, or it will be, the, 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 the primary aim of the path. For a while at least, for some, of course. And uh, I respect that, I respect that, even if it doesn't change. you know. But I have a question for you. Uh, what is your aim 
what is your direction? How are you uh, really holding your sense? Uh, how, how are you holding what is the point of, of the practice and the path for you? So this is a real question, and actually I want to pu- push it a little further uh, with you. Because if you answer, as of course people will, it, it is the reduction of suffering. So I've talked about this in other talks, you know, sometimes a lot of people have just, the ending of suffering just seems uh, too much like a pipe dream. And you say, it's the, I'm not going to go into that now, but you say, it's the reduction of suffering, at least it's the ease of suffering. I, again, I would, as I said, want to just push that a little further as a question. If, so if that's what you answer, I would just say, is it really, really, look again, take your time with this. I don't mean right now in this moment, I mean in your life. Is it really that that's what you most want? It might be. Of course it might be. Or is it somehow that we've just adopted an idea or a certain languaging or a certain framework from uh, Buddhist teachings and talks and books and we've just, in a way, kind of been indoctrinated by that. And in that, are we perhaps failing somehow, either because of a lack of confidence, a lack of inner authority, or just through habit, or through laziness, if that word even means anything, I'm not sure it does. Um, But somehow we're failing to ask that question of ourselves more probingly, to ask ourselves, what do I really, really want in the core of my being? And even more, why? Why? Why do I want what I really want? What do I really want and why? So really want to emphasize with this. It's your choice. Of course it's your choice. You're free to choose. I mean, actually, that freedom is constrained by conditioning all kinds of things. But um, essentially, let's say, let's say, or as far as I'm concerned, I, I don't want to, like I said, impose or or bully anyone at all. Your choice. But but at least ask the question, um, you know, with some probing, with some force, with some openness. Not the constraint of just what might as be, be actually a, a, a strange kind of subtle indoctrination. So there's a spectrum here where, where your answer might land. Uh, there's a, you know... One end, and we could say, if you like, the more radical end, the more unusual end, uh, certainly in in today's context, would be, what if the path and the goal of the path, the aim, the orientation path, is not less suffering, but actually the goal, the aim, the path, is an increase, a deepening, an opening, an enriching of the sense of the beauty, uh, beauty is plural, and the sacrednesses, the senses of sacredness of of existence. Self, other world, events, facts, cosmos, all of that. That would be replacing the goal of less suffering with the goal of the opening to beauty, the prioritizing of the beauty and the sense of sacredness. That would be quite a radical uh, position. 
quite unusual and one end of the spectrum. It was quite unusual for people to actually come out and say that or admit it to themselves. And maybe it's unusual as a position, I don't know. But there's a spectrum here and your choice. If it, if one did um, move to or, or admit that one lived on that more radical and oriented uh, on that more radical end of the spectrum, then some of you listening to this might might get a little nervous and just say, well, is that even Buddha Dharma? Is that Buddhism then, if that's the orientation? Because, And then get very, no, yikes. What are we doing here? What's he teaching? Because the cardinal orientation in Buddhism is towards less suffering. It's how everything is framed. I've talked about this before in other talks. I'm not going to dwell on it too much. Part of what I said in other talks was we have a fantasy uh, always when, when everyone, anyone is involved in the path um, to the extent that they love it and it's part of their life. Whenever we love something, there's a fantasy mixed with that loving. Uh, I've talked about this before. So we can imagine... Uh, or rather we image and fantasy this whole, our relationship with, um, if you like, going, uh, inhabiting this position of replacing the aim of less suffering with the increase of beauty. If we're doing that, we can fantasy it in different ways. We can see the self and the dharma and the whole project in different ways. could be that we see ourselves going outside of the Dharma, could be that we see ourselves extending it, could be that we try and um, engage a kind of historical fantasy and find evidence for actually the Buddha was always saying that, you know. So there's different ways we fantasy the self, the tradition, the Dharma, uh, all of that, the goal, etc. Always fantasy is involved in these different positions, uh, different fantasies that we can take with that. As I've talked about this before, I don't want to go into it now. But I would repeat a question that I think I, I uh, brought up in, in other talks on another retreat, which is, if this comes up for you, oh, is that Buddhism? Is that what the Buddha taught? Is that the Dharma? Again, I, I, would, I would ask a question, why is that so important to you? Why, anyway, is that question so important? What's going on for you that this sort of um, allegiance to something called Buddhism which clearly uh, means very different things to, to, to different people, even here at Guy House. What a range there is in, in the way that the teachers, even the core teachers, conceive of what is the Dharma, what it's for, what it does, what it, the history, all of that. Why is this allegiance to some kind of constructed notion we have to admit that our, 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 whatever we call Buddhism is constructed by us through our fantasy, through our selective uh, emphasis on different aspects of the history or tradition, whatever, through our understanding as it's limited at the present. And so when we construct this Buddhism and then we feel this allegiance to it. What's going on there? And how has that allegiance eclipsed uh, what maybe even, at a deeper level, I haven't realized yet, more important to me? What's going on psychologically, spiritually, etc.? Certainly we're conditioned uh, 
to approach practice and and the path and our conceptions of it um, in certain ways and with certain assumptions. And I said, even the Four Noble Truths, it's right there. It's core Buddhist teaching. um, Talks about suffering, the end of suffering, the way to the way to the end of suffering. So right there, this uh, primacy of reducing suffering, at least, um, is 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 given to us through core Buddhist teachings, Four Noble Truths. In the mindfulness world, is very um, tied to a medical model: stress reduction, uh, pain relief, um, cognitive behavioral therapy for depression. And th- these these are the the roots of uh, the way mindfulness is taking. Uh, so so the the um, yeah the threads of the way mindfulness is taking root in the culture is on a medical model, and of course, medical model has to do with getting rid of suffering. That's what medicine does, right? It gets rid of physical suffering. So here I talk about, um, uh, so mindfulness is presented, thought about, and actually sold, if you like, through a medical model which has to do with less suffering. You know, the huge projects um, that that are happening in this country, in the States, and the funding um, for those projects would never be available outside of a medical model. I say to the government, I want to increase the sense of beauty and um, competing with someone else who, has, who wants to reduce um, um, suffering. Who's going to get the funding? And not only that, um, there's the, uh, the uh, what would you say, the attraction um, of, of uh, presenting uh, the, uh, the scientific paradigm of the medical model um, uh, to to most people in the modern culture, because it, again, it it fits the dominant um, uh, mode of understanding. Science is important, etc. But even more than that, you know, I was l- flicking through a sort of New Age spiritual magazine, um, or you look at blurbs for um, uh, different retreats in the magazine, or ads for this or that, and um, it, actually various magazines. And almost everything, almost everything um, in the blurbs and ads for courses and retreats and practitioners and blah, blah, um, has to do with healing uh, or flourishing, this word that's become very popular uh, nowadays, human flourishing or self-empowerment or deep rest, etc. It's all, in other words, different ways of... Um, uh, languaging or approaching this idea of reducing suffering, increasing happiness, etc., etc. Um, it's not the focus is not on this opening of beauty, that that, that that making that primary, the opening of beauty and the senses of sacredness. Notice too, by the way, how healing, um, flourishing, self empowerment, deep rest, all, all of these, in a way, they're um, products. Of or reactions to uh, secular modernism, in, in, in their pro- the whole way of thinking, human flourishing. We're going to come back to self empowerment. They're products of um, a sense of self that is con- conceived uh, um, within the paradigms and and through the constraints and through the tunnel vision of of secular modernism. We don't see it because we don't are not aware of the historical construction over hundreds of years of that, sense, of that kind of sense of self. 
But these kind of thrusts of these retreat are, are also products of secular modernism or reactions, if you like, to a modern lifestyle. So if I'm honest, if I'm honest, you know, I really, I don't actually care that much um, if you're a little, you know, through practice, uh, you're a little less stressed at your computer keyboard uh, at work or in the kitchen or whatever it is. Um, uh, or I don't care so much if in those activities uh, you're not so mindful. You know, I can't say I'm, I passionately care about that. Or, or maybe I should say it differently. I, I do care about that, but mostly... Um, I care about it in proportion to the extent that stress and lack of mindfulness blocks and veils our deeper seeing, our deeper sensibilities, our possibilities to uh, know and open to the senses of the sacred. Uh, our possibility of knowing and opening to a sense of things uh, and self and other and world as it being more than this and this meaning more than the flat uh, uh, secular modernist um, version or story of what things are and how reality is so I care about all this to the extent that stress and lack of mindfulness block and veil um, the depth that's possible to us the sense of divinity in whatever ways that that, that might come for us and open for us uh, that it, these things block and veil seeing emptiness deeply the possibility of opening to the unfabricated the possibility of re-enchanting our existence and our cosmos so that's just this is what I care about. I'm just being honest here. Of course, if I'm sitting one-on-one -on -one, uh, with someone in an interview and what they care about is their stress at the keyboard and that's what we're talking about, that's what we're talking about. That's what I will, uh, to the best of my ability, help them with and tools and approaches that can help with that kind of stress. But, to be honest, it's not what I'm going to devote my uh, work and energy and existence and thought to. But again, that's just a personal confession, if you like. Um, so going back to these sort of uh, what, what's in the context of our of our spiritual culture, um, or and psychological culture, what I often feel is that um, if um, uh, something, uh, someone writes a book or or is presenting something, and and the language. Um, of that spirituality or psych psychology or psychospirituality, it seems to, um, indeed, it does seem to be seeing self and self-expression as theophanies, as faces of the divine, um, as expressions of the divine. Um, sometimes I get the sense as I read more or listen more, that actually it, it's not very full or deep that transition or transformation to really seeing um, self and self-expression as theophany or, 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 or um, 
or the divine. It's not that full or deep. Um, there's not really a kind of great shift from the kind of self-centeredness, literally a self-centered uh, view. So all of this, I might use that language and um, often in the Jungian traditions, etc., they use that language um, or related traditions use that language of um, the divine coming through or this or that in relation to the self and self-expression. But somehow it, there's something in it that just seems like, yeah, but not really. It's somehow still the self at the center um, uh, that's being uh, prioritized. Or there is a shift, but very quickly it slips back. So it just slips back to the self being primary and, and central and the divinity, the orientation towards divinity um, rather than self is secondary and kind of nominal a little bit. Now all this is complicated. This is complicated and something we're going to return to. Both Catherine and I talk about a lot, um, hopefully, on this retreat. But So I want to really make clear that um, the self, self-views, and the personal relevance of whatever it is that we're dealing with, our dukkha, our difficulties, our stuckness, our challenges, this or that event in our life, um, these images and fantasies that come, the, 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 the personal relevance of all that is or vital and necessary to include. So when I'm not interested in dismissing the self and, as I said, all the particularities and the, the, the personhood. We, we need, at least in the way that we are conceiving of re-enchantment and working with images, we need to include all that in our relationship with images and with our life, the image of our life, the images of our life and ourself, in, in the views that we have about all that and in our explorations. But there's something about the the balance of the importance of self and divine in the governing con- concepts, in the concepts that govern our path. This is making sense. It's like um, the background assumptions relative to images. Like what is, again, what is the purpose? Uh, am I doing this as a kind of self-growth, my process, uh, etc., healing myself, or all that, uh, having less suffering. You know, valid uh, and important as that is, but what is the relative balance of doing it for me or doing it, let's say, for God? All this practice, all this effort, all this inquiry, all the sessions in therapy, or whatever it is, if I, if I really something inside shifts, I'm, this is for God. It's for the sake of God. It's for the sake of, if you like, God's fulfillment. We'll come back to these ideas. That's a pretty radical, and in our Western culture, very rare um, uh, transformation of position of priority. But 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 there's a, there's a balance, you, or rather, what what I want to highlight is that that. Um, there will be relative weights, if you like, of self, what we could call self-orientation, or orientation based on self or towards self-healing, uh, uh, self-growth and all that, and divine orientation. And this comes in in all kinds of ways, also in relation to the notions of 
causality, etc. We'll come back to this, and we'll dwell on it now. But depending on that balance between what we could call um, the intentions of uh, self or self-orientation and and divine orientations, our life and our practices um, will unfold, uh, if you like, somewhere or other, depending on that balance, on a spectrum of immature enchantment, what we're calling that uh, immature enchantment on this retreat, and, if you like, a mature, more fertile enchantment. Uh, with greater soul-making possibility. So, the more the more the orientation and the conception, the weight of priority is given over to the divine instead of the self, um, the more mature and fertile and soul-making is the enchantment that we're talking about. This, as I said, all this is complex. It's not simple. Because um, we... A person might hear about uh, this possible shift of view and intention to prioritize beauty and the sense of sacredness over less suffering. And hear and say, yes, that's great, it sounds beautiful. Um, After I've sorted myself out a bit and there's uh, less stress in my life and I'm a bit more free. And there may be, of course, uh, some real wisdom in in that kind of response. It's like, yes, I'm really attracted to that and I've got some work to do for it beforehand. But as I said, this is complex. The relationships here between these two sort of thrusts are very intertwined and, and, and not, not simple. Um, the relation of the priority of the relation of, of rather let's say this the relationship of self view and freedom and the relationship of all that with uh, the prioritizing of uh, beauty and, and increasing the sense of sacredness this is complex now it's true to say i think generally speaking generally speaking that the the depth the degree the breadth and the range of seeing beauty, sacredness, etc., um, is gen- generally it's dependent on the degree, the depth of seeing emptiness and seeing the unfabricated. Generally uh, speaking, so to the degree that we understand and have realized and absorbed, um, and the depth of seeing emptiness and uh, less fabrication, or or even the unfabricated, um, to that degree. Um, our openness, our perception of of beauty and sacredness is opened in all kinds of ways. And that's the flip of saying what I said before, in a way. Um, when there is, or in the moments, in the times when there is more stress, when we're more bound in self-concern uh, and, and, and sort of imprisoned by certain self-views, uh, imprisoned by self-views, in those moments, when that is strong, then generally speaking, um, there is less of a sense of depth. Um, there is less of a possibility for um, transcendence, for, trans- for perceptions that are transcendent, less of a sense uh, of the uh, or the availability of theophanies of, of beauties and se- and sense of sacredness. Generally speaking, 
But still, it's a complex complex, because what is the effect uh, of reversing priorities? If from the priority of self-growth and healing and more freedom and less suffering from that um, constellation of priorities, if I reverse and I transfer it to my priority is deepening, extending, enriching my uh, the sense of beauty and sacredness of all things, of existence, what is the effect of actually reversing those priorities on the very sense of self, um, the inadequacies, sense of the inadequacies of self, and and uh, on on freedom itself, because that reversal itself, just the reversing of the priorities before anything else has been seen or open to or insights had or whatever experiences, just the reversal itself may in itself be uh, immensely healing and unburdening. So this is. As I said, it's complex. The relationship here is complex. But uh, the reversal itself can have an effect, an important effect. And, and it's also possible <laughs> that, you know, the, the self can, in its uh, delusion, its habit of contracting and grasping, can easily grasp onto anything and twist it to its own um, purposes. So even if I do reverse the priorities, I can twist all that and the project of that into uh, just being uh, a reflection of my, or supposed reflection of my progress in doing that. How well am I doing at seeing beauty and seeing sacredness and all that? So a person might even hear about this shift of priorities and orientation and then and then maybe right away even the response is, but I can't do that. Others others will be able to do that probably, but I'll fail at it. And the whole thing has become about self again. Self just grasped hold of something, made it about self, not the divine. I like the idea, but somehow I just I just turn it into self again. So complex, not uh, you know, not not easy this question, but I but I want to open it up partly and just point out its complexity because I think sometimes we're too quick and too simplistic in our in our approaching uh, these questions. And you know the whole question of the order uh, that I alluded to earlier. You know, do I need to heal psychologically? Um, get a bit. Um, freer in my life, a bit more well-being before I can approach all this imaginal stuff and enchantment. Good question, but not simple. You know, um, it seems to me that in the in the world that certainly I move in, the assumption is often yes that I need to do that before I can do this. I need to heal psychologically before I can entertain these far-out teachings about enchantment and the imaginal. But again, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not, sometimes it's just not simple. Most of the time, it's, it, the, the whole question is much more complex, and we bring to it a lot of assumptions that are conditioned by uh, a lot of, um, well, all kinds of things, but contemporary, contemporary teachings and contemporary psychotherapies, etc. This is something we're both going to return to uh, later on the retreat, so we'll, we'll talk more about this later, fill this out more. It's very... Uh, 
important and integral to everything that we're talking about. But I want to say, I want to point out that for some people, I don't know what proportion, but for some people, soul-making, soulfulness, beauty in all its range and uh, uh, surprising uh, manifestations and the sense of sacredness and, and the sense of art, the art of all that, the art of perception, what we're talking about, the living as art, and I'm going to talk much more about that um, uh, soon on this retreat. But all those things, soul-making, soulfulness, beauty, sense of sacredness, the art, um, these are necessities to their being. For some people, these are absolute necessities. More than a decrease in suffering, more than an increase in the peacefulness or comfort of their existence. And for some people, art, and I mean that in a very broad sense as I, as I do when I speak about beauty uh, and also sacredness, art matters more than anything. For some people, art matters more than anything. Now, uh, actually we could say that there are dimensions of soul that all human beings possess that need nourishing, that the these soul-making, soulfulness, the sense of beauty, the sense of sacredness, the sense of engaging in the art of existence, of creative existence, we could say that that's universal um, uh, to all souls, and that that aspects, dimensions of our being, our soul, that need nourishing and need to grow. But... Attractive as that might be as an idea, um, I don't want to foist that position, which is a lot more radical than uh, and rare uh, than than many people might be happy with. I don't want to foist that on on everyone. There's too many uh, teachings and psychologies and spiritualities, whether they use that word or not, that try and present. Uh, what they're saying as universally applicable to everyone. And if they don't apply to you, you're just deluded, etc. Um, I don't want, I'm not interested in foisting a certain vision or orientation uh, on anyone, in fact. Um, I go back to what I said, all this is your choice. Your choice, where you land or how you move along the spectrum back and forth or how it evolves for you over time, your position in terms of these orientations, these intentions, the balance, the weight. But what I do want to do is make sure that um, make sure that those who are often not addressed, those people who I just uh, alluded to, those people for whom these aspects the beauty, the sense of sacredness, the soul-making, the soulfulness, is actually necessity. The art is primary. The art is, is of existence is what matters, uh, or art in existence is what matters more than anything else. I do want to address those people, include those people who are often not addressed in spiritual and psychological courses and teachings and books. I want to include them. And, and make sure that in the range of teachings and the emphasis that that um, radicality of orientation is addressed. Because oftentimes it's not, it seems to me. So all of this is um, 
complex. But but uh, to add one more piece, all all of this is, um, and we're still talking about why and, and context. Uh, um, all of this is wrapped up with a whole other dimension, which has to do with meaningfulness. Um, it, the, the, the whole question of meaningfulness in our lives and the meaningfulness of our lives, our sense of meaningfulness individually um, for each of us, um, is, is wrapped up in everything that I've been, we've been talking about uh, so far. Um, a sense of meaningfulness goes in inherently, if you like, with imaginal work, with, with fantasy, and with enchantment. Um, and particularly with enchantment, because meaningfulness is not just um, individual, or rather not just personal. Um, our sense of meaningfulness in our lives is, yes, uh, related to individual um, orientations and movements through life and aspirations and directions, etc. Um, but it's also related to, to the meaningfulness or not of the cosmos. Again, this is something we're going to co- come back to um, later in the retreat. Uh, the self and meaningfulness uh, and how that's wrapped up in imaginal work and in the whole notion of enchantment. We'll return to that. But, again, this is part of, like, why are we practicing? What's the point of the path? Why is it important to offer these teachings? Um, So we'll say more uh, about that. And there's also a relationship between meaningfulness and freedom. And again, we'll come back to this. But just a couple of things about it now. Um, When there's a sense of meaningfulness in life, it often involves a sense of duty. Some kind of duty. And I know that's a heavy word. I've talked about this before in other talks. Um... Where an image is alive, where a fantasy is alive, and when enchantment is alive, and when meaningfulness is alive and operative, there's wrapped up in that uh, not only a freedom that it opens, but also a, some kind of duty. Um, I think I just want to mention that now, but we'll, we'll come, come back to it. Um, and one last thing, just for now. Um, if if we do, or to the extent that we do, um, aim at or orient towards opening up, enriching, deepening, widening uh, the sense of beauty, the sense of the senses of sacredness, um, soul making, meaningfulness, all these these aspects and these dimensions of being, to the extent that we orient and aim at those things, the path becomes open ended. Because what's the limit of beauty that we can um, feel and appreciate and be moved by? What's the limit to the sense of sacredness? There is no limit to soul-making. Uh, th- these things are open-ended. And, and so when we take them as central to the aim and orientation of the path, the path becomes open-ended. Now actually, and again I've said this uh, somewhere or other before, I can't remember. Actually, when we go really deeply and without sort of... Uh, just unquestioningly 
accepting a sort of received tradition or dogma about what freedom from suffering is or where it's limited or what it means, um, when we actually begin in our thinking, but in our path itself, in our lived and, and practiced path, when we begin opening out um, different kinds and dimensions of freedom, we start to discover freedom is not a, a, a one universal monolithic uh, thing. There's aspects, kinds, and dimensions of freedom, and these are discoverable, um, achievable. We can sometimes uh, break out into whole areas of freedom. Our, our, uh, something shatters, and we find ourselves at a whole other, um, in a whole other territory of openness, of freedom, that we hadn't even realized before, A, that it was available, or B, that we were imprisoned and not free before. So when we actually start to think about freedom too, in 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 again in more probing ways, and start to practice in certain ways, um, the whole question of freedom also becomes open-ended. Yeah, freedom is not a finishable project, really, and to me that's beautiful. Rather than being uh, depressing or burden, it's actually beautiful. It's open-ended, and that's. That's lovely. It's glorious. But neither uh, open-endedness um, is usual, whether it's the open-endedness of, of um, more and more deeper and deeper, richer and richer, uh, wider and wider beauties, sense of sacredness, soul-making, etc. Whether it's that kind of open-endedness or the open-endedness of kinds and dimensions of freedom, um, neither is the usual concept of the path. Um, it's not usually uh, conceived in in that way. So again, this has to do with the context of of of, of, of these teachings and why they might be important. But this uh, maybe just finish with with a few quotes by Carl Jung um, in relation to this open endedness. Um, that to me is very beautiful and very much. Um, inevitable, I think, when one starts questioning in certain ways and when one starts practicing in certain ways. And certainly, as I said, um, once one gets into the whole realm of the imaginal and the, uh, if you like, the unavoidability of fantasy and um, and also the whole question and practices with enchantment. So... Uh, Actually, there's something his uh, lifetime assistant, long-term assistant, um, uh, Aniela Yaffe, I think her name was, um, wrote, and then and then some quotes of Jung. She said, "The goal of individuation, um, the realization of the self, is the the goal of the Jungian path, if you like, is never fully attained because it transcends consciousness. The archetype of the self can never be wholly apprehended." And because of its boundlessness, never completely lived in actual life. So this is really what I want to emphasize. Because of its boundlessness, it can never be completely lived in actual life. Successful individuation, Jung says, is never total. It is a, uh, and Jung goes on to say, but it is just the impossibility of this task that makes it so significant. A task that is possible, i.e. solvable, sol- sol- solvable, never appeals to our superiority. 
So there's something about something in us needs something open-ended. Something in us needs something impossible. We don't usually think this way. Or again, the self. This uh, careful of my language now, but let's say the ego. Uh, without unpacking all these words right now, let's just say the ego um, or the contracted self. Um, you know, gets upset when something feels impossible. But something in us needs something impossible. In another place Jung said, uh, wrote, The serious problems of life are never fully solved. If ever they should appear to be so, it is a sure sign that something has been lost. The meaning and purpose of a problem seem to lie not in its solution, but in our working at it incessantly. This alone preserves us from stultification and putrefaction. So again, different way of conceiving of the path, but one I think that when one um, enters more into the territory of imaginal work and this work of re-enchanting, and when one shifts the priorities, or to the extent that one does, or as I said, even when one really really opens out the questions of freedom, um, this... uh, open-endedness, the beautiful uh, open-endedness of, of the path uh, becomes a, a fact that we, that we uh, start orienting to and opening ourselves to. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.